me ask you a question. Have you, um, have any of you ever had a job that if you were honest with yourself, looking back on it, you were just the worst at it? I mean, maybe, maybe you knew it at the time. Maybe you didn't. But now you realize that you were just the worst at that job. Anybody have that kind of thing? Yeah, good. I've had a few of those. Uh, when I was a kid, like back in high school, I worked at, <laughs> I worked at a Western apparel and saddle store. Uh, I don't have any idea about saddles or anything else, and uh, I didn't know what I was selling. I can remember, this is back in the day, like some of you will remember this, that when you bought something at a store, they actually hand wrote you like a receipt. And, I, and on the receipt, you know, you're supposed to say, well, here's what they bought and here's how much. And I can remember just scribbling gibberish on the ticket because I had no idea what it was that they were buying. I didn't know what it was. Um, when I was in college, I saw an ad for a job as a disc jockey at a roller skating rink. And I thought, well, man, that could, you know, that could be kind of a cool college job. So I go to the interview and they asked me if I could roller skate. Now, I was always taught that no matter what they ask you, if you can do, you always say yes. And so I said, sure, I can, I can roller skate. Now, that was a bold-faced lie. I'll just be honest with you about it. I had no idea how to roller skate, but I rationalized to myself, I don't have to roller skate because I'm going to be the DJ at this place. They hired me. It wasn't until the next day when I reported to work that I found out that my job included being a floor guard having to roller skate around and regulate a bunch of hormone-filled middle-aged, middle school-aged kids. Um, I didn't know anything about roller skating, and it is hard to be a floor guard and blow the whistle on kids with authority when they're breaking the rules when your arms are flailing all around and you're spending most of your time on the floor. And I'll never forget, there was this one smart aleck little middle school kid, never forget his little evil face, (laughs) who would sneak up behind me and push me, and down I would go. It was comical. It was, at least now I can say that it was comical. It wasn't very comical at the time. But for a long time, I knew that I was just the worst at that job. And it wasn't hard for me to just tell you that, yes, I'm just the worst at being a roller skating floor guard. Well, this morning, Dustin and I are beginning a a new sermon series about a prophet in the Old Testament who was just the worst at being a prophet of God. At times, his story is comical. At times, his story is absurd. At other times, his story is horrifying. But one thing that it never is, is boring. And so if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it back to the Old Testament, to the book of the prophet Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, Uh, We'll put the verses up on the screen, but if you would, in the future, if you become a regular attender here, please bring your Bible, whether it's a hard copy or digital copy, either one's fine, but just make sure you bring your Bible because that's the basis for what we talk about here, the Bible, and you'll want to remember some things that we have said. As you're turning there, just a couple of things I want you to know about prophets. Prophets had two functions. One is called forthtelling, and the other is called foretelling. Now, here's the difference between those things. Forthtelling simply meant that a prophet was responsible for telling people what God had spoken to them. You know, remember, they didn't have the Bible back in that day. They had, they had a, a portion of the Old Testament, but they didn't have the whole revelation of God that we do. And so God would sometimes speak to the prophets, and then the prophets were to speak to the rest of the nation. Okay? 
So forth telling was just simply preaching to people what God had told them to communicate. And usually it was something like this. You're in sin, and God is going to smite you if you don't repent. So they weren't the most popular of guys all the time. Now, the other thing was foretelling. Foretelling was telling people what God had spoken to them about something that was going to happen in the future, usually in the distant future, something that they couldn't have possibly known themselves. Now, what do you think when you hear people predict things that are going to happen in the future? Well, you think they're crazy. And so not only were the prophets not the most popular guys, but many people thought that they were crazy too. It was a tough job for these guys, one that they got very little thanks for and often found themselves in danger for their very lives for doing this job. Well, with that, I want to start reading from verse 1 of the book of the prophet Jonah. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. And preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So this is how it is often described in the Bible when God spoke to a prophet. It'll say the word of the Lord came to them. Now that doesn't mean that it came to them sort of intuitively. It means that uh, it means that God spoke it to them in some way. So Jonah's mission here, God is saying, is to foretell to speak God's word to the people of Nineveh. And like I said earlier, often prophets were speaking messages of judgment to people. And so Jonah was to go and speak against them, telling them that God has seen their wickedness and that he is ready to judge it. Now, Jonah's response to God's command is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. And what I want to do this morning is I want to break down Jonah chapter 1 uh, and, and my comments into three parts. Here they are. We're going to see Jonah running, we're going to see Jonah sleeping, and we're going to see Jonah sinking. Running, sleeping, and sinking, all right? We're going to start, obviously, with running. Look at verse 3. After the Lord had commanded this to Jonah, The text says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard, and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So this is one of the reasons that Dust and I are referring to Jonah as just the worst prophet, because as a prophet, the most basic responsibility that a prophet had was to go where God told him to go to say what God wanted them to say. But Jonah has no intention of doing what God has commanded him to do. He has no intention of going to Nineveh. In fact, Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Like if Jonah lived in America, and let's say God told Jonah to go, uh, you know, to Michigan, let's say, Jonah was heading straight to Alabama. He was going in the opposite direction. Wanted nothing part of that. Now, the question, the obvious question is why? What's up with this? Why is he running away from God? And I think that it would be very easy to assume that it's because he's scared silly of this. And if that were the reason, uh, he would have very good reason to be scared silly. Nineveh was the capital city of Israel's archenemy, Assyria. Nineveh and Assyria is in their early, Assyria as a nation is in their early ascendancy to world power. They are a cruel and a ruthless nation. When they took over a nation, when they conquered 
a surrounding nation, they would often torture their captives, dismembering them while they were alive, skinning them alive, pulling out their tongues and their testicles of live victims, and then burning them alive. Now, let me ask you a question. Knowing that, how much fun do you think it would be for a Jewish guy to go into the capital city of his Gentile arch enemy and say, yo, you people are wicked, repent? How much fun do you think that would be? Probably not much fun. Think of it this way. How would you, as an American, like to go to, say, uh, Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, go right into their town square and yell, how would you like to do this? Yell, repent in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you like to do that? I mean, because, you know, the name of Jesus would actually get you killed there. How would you like to do that? So, So if Jonah were afraid, he would have very good reason to be. But that's not the issue here, or at least it's not the main issue here. The main issue that Jonah runs is that he hates the Assyrian people with a religious hatred that he thinks is perfectly justified. In his mind, their cruelty, their ruthlessness, their evil warranted his hatred of them. They were enemies of the Jewish people. And so, God, and so Jonah wants God to judge them for their wickedness. And by judge them, Jonah meant destroy them, wipe them off the map. And you might be tempted to think, when you read what God told Jonah to say, you might be tempted to think, well, that's okay, that's what God has in mind. He says, he says preach a, against Nineveh. But Jonah's calculated that if God wanted to just destroy Nineveh, he would never send Jonah to preach to them. He just destroyed Nineveh, right? Jonah realizes that if God is sending Jonah to preach against Nineveh, the only reason that God would do that is that he wants to rescue Nineveh through Jonah's preaching. And Jonah wants no part of that. And so he runs in the opposite direction, thinking that that is the most righteous thing that he can do. But here is, here is the irony. If Jonah had any self-awareness, he might have thought to himself, how much difference is there really between the Assyrians who cruelly torture and murder their captives and a prophet of God who refuses to lift a finger to rescue a whole city of people who are bound for death and destruction? How much difference between the two is there really? Jonah's preoccupation with the evil of the Assyrians has blinded him to his own angry, hateful, self-righteous heart, which, by the way, is precisely the reason that God has sent Jonah to Nineveh. Does that surprise you? Perhaps you would think, well, you know, God would realize that Jonah was the wrong guy for the job and that he would kind of look down his bench at uh, substitute prophets and he would call another prophet to go out and do the job. You know, think, well, that prophet will be better than Jonah. Jonah hates Nineveh. I'm not going to use Jonah. I'll put in a substitute. Understand that Jonah's response is absolutely no surprise to God. Might have been a surprise to Jonah, not to God. Might be a surprise to us but not to God. No, the reason that God calls Jonah is because he is committed to Jonah's spiritual development and he is committed to reconciling 
even with Jonah's worst enemy. He wants Jonah to have to confront the depth of his own sinful hatred. He wants Jonah to understand that if God dealt with Jonah the way Jonah wants the people of Nineveh to be dealt with, Jonah too would have to, be, would have to die. God wants Jonah to see that the only thing keeping Jonah standing was God's grace. Because, look, while the scope of Jonah's sin and hatred might not be quite as wide as the, as the people of Nineveh or the people of Assyria, it most certainly ran as deep as theirs. Now, here is what I hope is dawning on you right now. I hope you're hearing more than just Jonah's story here. I hope you're hearing your own story here too. Because let's face it, all of us have people in our lives that we would just love for God to smite with his mighty sword of smiting. We would all love that of some people, right? like your ex, maybe a former boss, current boss that's humiliated you on numerous occasions in front of other people. Maybe it's a a, a relative who is a conservative, or maybe it's a relative who is a liberal, or maybe it's a relative who's a a trumper, or or maybe one that's a a never-trumper. Maybe it's people who drive slowly in the left lane. See, if God is going to use us, the people of God in the kingdom of God, he's going to use us as agents of healing and reconciliation in the world in the manner that we describe it up here on the wall in our vision statement. We as a people have to be brought to a place that we see that our own hatred is unjustifiable and that it does nothing to bring healing and reconciliation to the world, which is why perhaps... And let me just say this, and then you can go home and curse me later. But maybe, maybe that's why God has allowed your Ninevite in your life after all to expose the destructive hatred in your own heart. Oh, I, don't, I know you don't like that idea that, you know, like maybe your boss is there intentionally by God. Maybe that conservative family member is there intentionally. Maybe the liberal family member who you think is a nut, maybe they're intentionally. Maybe they're there intentionally. In order to expose the evil hatred in your own heart. Well, Jonah's running uh, from the Lord because he wants nothing to do with Nineveh's rescue. He wants them judged, and he wants them destroyed. But, and get ready for this, because I'm about to say something epically funny here. God isn't going to let Jonah off the hook. Yes, thank you. Okay, those of you up there in the balcony, uh, come on. That was humor. And I'm going to tell you, if you're new here at a city church, that is the kind of epically funny humor you will get every week if you come to this place. Now, God's not going to let Jonah off the hook that easily. Second part of the story, we just saw Jonah running. Now we're going to see Jonah sleeping. 
Look at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to their own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him, and he said, how can you sleep? Now, what do you know about sailors as a group of people? Like, how many of you have ever heard the expression, that guy prayed like a sailor? Raise your hand if you heard. See, nobody's heard that expression. (laughs) Which gives you a sense of the degree of the storm that these guys are in. If you're ever on a ship and a storm sets in and the sailors stop cussing and start praying, you better find a lifeboat fast because things are bad and the ship is probably going down. This is a serious storm. But Jonah's fast asleep below deck, like in such a deep sleep that he doesn't even realize the terrible storm that they're in. And the captain goes down and he asks him the obvious question, how can you sleep through this? Jonah never answers the question, but we know the reason. The reason is that as far as Jonah is concerned, he's convinced he's doing the right, righteous thing. And so his conscience is perfectly clear. He is sleeping the sleep of the man with a good conscience, which, by the way, is why you should never trust your conscience. Because we find all sorts of ways of deluding ourselves. Jonah's conscience is fine even though he's doing something horrible, something terrible. You know, all kinds of tyrants throughout history, all kinds of serial killers have always done that. They've let their conscience be their guide. If God waited for our conscience to be our guide, we would be lost, the whole world would be lost. So what does he do? He sends a storm. And understand this. When God wants you to see something in yourself, something that's destructive to you, something that is destructive to the people around you, when he wants to to bring you to a place of repentance, he often sends a storm into your life of some kind. Repentance isn't waiting for God, uh, excuse me, repentance isn't God waiting for us to cry out to him Repentance is always God reaching out and sending storms and allowing us to sink, to wake us up so we can finally see who we really are. And so he sends a storm that Jonah can no longer sleep through, which brings us to the third part of the story, and that is that Jonah is sinking. We've seen him running. We've seen him sleeping. Now he's sinking. The captain goes, and as we said, he wakes Jonah up, and he says to Jonah in the last part of verse 6, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Now, uh, please understand that the sailors in this story aren't here because they're great theologians. They're spewing out some really bad theology here. Not every calamity is due to someone's sins. Like some calamities just happen naturally. But in their pagan theology, 
This storm has to be caused by the displeasure of the gods with someone. And in this particular case, they happen to be right. They're usually wrong. But in this case, they just happen to be right. And their superstitious way of figuring out who the cause of the storm is was to do this thing that they called casting lots. And uh, casting lots was kind of like this. Each guy had like a little marker. Let's say that this is my little marker. And there would be some way that that marker uh, was personalized so that you knew whose marker it was. And they would throw this marker, each of these guys, each of these sailors would throw their little markers into uh, like a container and they would shake the container. So like, have you ever played backgammon? Okay, so you know how dice go into the, into the little container and you shake it. And whatever uh, marker, whoever's marker came out was the one that was responsible for the calamity. Now, look, I mean, this is nothing but superstition on their part. But God can work even through silly superstition to accomplish his purposes if he wants to. Like he can overwhelm, he can overcome silly superstition to do what he wants to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jonah and I'm on a boat full of sailors sinking in the ocean during a storm, I'm praying, God, don't let it be my marker that comes out. Please do not let it be mine. Don't be my marker. But I love how the text says it in just this understated uh, way. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. You guys, any of you guys remember, I don't know if they had them up here, but down in, in uh, Texas, they had these uh, commercials. Southwest Airlines ran for a long time, and uh, the commercial always had somebody doing something that was socially unacceptable, and then they kind of got caught, and then it would, there'd be like this, you know, like this ding, like, a, like an airplane ding. You go ding, and then, and then the, the thing was, want to get away? You guys remember that? Did they do that up here? Yeah, okay. So you knew that. Why'd you make me tell the whole story if you knew it? <laughs> Want to get away? You know? So I think that must be what's happening to Jonah here in this moment. Like, you know, I want out of here. The sailors ask him like a series of frantic questions in verse 9. And all the while, the storm is getting worse and worse, and the sea is getting rougher. And finally, Jonah says to them in verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, uh, okay, what's happening here? Well, this storm that God has sent into Jonah's life has brought him to repentance. Now, I'm not saying complete and total repentance, but it's brought him to at least a partial repentance here. Jonah wakes up, and he sees the storm, And he realizes that he's not going to get away with running from God. He sees this for what it is. He sees that the storm is God's intervention into his life. It's as if God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, look, if judgment and destruction are the way that you want the people of Nineveh treated, then let's apply it across the board. Let me give you what you deserve, Jonah. And to Jonah's credit, he owns this very calmly without making any excuses, Jonah says, I'm the cause of this. My disobedience has endangered your lives. So throw me into the sea, and the sea will grow calm, and this, story, this storm will go away, and you guys 
will live. Now, just a brief little digression, if you will allow me to do so here. One of the maxims of our culture, you've heard it, everybody's heard it, is that you should be able to do anything you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But only an individual, individualistic culture like ours could possibly have a maxim like that. Because the reality is that everything you do affects someone else. Your disobedience is never just your disobedience. It always affects other people, which is what we're seeing in this story. Jonah's disobedience is endangering the lives of these sailors. Digression over. At first, the sailors refused to throw Jonah into the sea, but eventually, well, let's read from verse 13. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, please, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. And then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. Jonah's sinking. In chapter 2, you're going to see more of what happens after Jonah is thrown overboard and what happens while he is sinking. Some significant things happen to Jonah while he's sinking. But until we get to chapter 2, I want you to just look at the last verse in chapter 1 because it kind of of jumps to the end here, chapter 1. It says, But the Lord provided a great fish... To swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. By the way, three days and three nights. Does that ring a bell for any of you? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know that the book of Jonah and this whole episode of him being swallowed by a big fish is one of the big objections that many people have to the Bible. They find this story to be incredulous, and they argue that no one could rationally believe in a story of a man being swallowed by a fish and surviving to talk about it. The problem, though, is that they're missing the very point of the story. Jonah's problem is that he has a self-righteous, hateful heart. He sees the Assyrians, and he wants them judged for their evil, tit for tat, an eye for an eye, Now, see, that's the natural, instinctive way of life. It's how the world operates. You wrong me, I judge you, and I retaliate. And then you do the same thing. Ever been on Twitter? That's a perfect perfect modern-day social media example of that sort of tit-for-tat, I'm outraged because you said, therefore I'm going to say kind of thing. But a world that operates on the basis of judgment and retaliation, if you think of it, if you think about it, always sinks into a downward spiral of revenge. There's nothing that pulls them out of revenge. They just keep doing it to one another until there is mutually assured self-destruction. 
There's no hope for that kind of a world. The only hope for the world God is showing Jonah and he's showing us is grace. Grace is a miracle. That's why there's a big fish here. The fish, the big fish is a miracle. Just like grace is a miracle. You see, see, judgment and and hatred and retaliation, not a miracle. (laughs) That's, That's just very natural. But grace is a miracle. And so to demonstrate that, God sends a miracle to rescue Jonah. Jonah's own hatred deserves judgment and death, but God wants to heal Jonah, not kill him, just like he wants to heal Nineveh instead of destroy it. And so God does something completely unnatural, at least as far as the world goes. He shows Jonah grace in the form of a big The only hope, you see, that for the world that we live in today is great. And God's people, the people of the kingdom of God, have to be the agents of grace. And that is what, that's what God is teaching us here in Jonah 1. The only reason that you're still alive, the only reason I'm still alive, the only reason we haven't been judged and destroyed is because Jesus Christ was judged and destroyed for us. And there's an allusion, I don't know if you caught it, but there's an allusion to Jesus' death in this story. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. Did you catch it? You see it? It's when Jonah is thrown into the sea and the storm subsides and the sailors live as a result. See if this sounds familiar. The sacrifice of a Jewish man saved the lives of a bunch of Gentile pagans. Does that ring a bell? But Jonah didn't die when he was thrown into the storm. Why? Because Jonah was rescued by God's grace, just like many of us in the room today have been rescued by God's grace. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for us on the cross. He took on our sins and punishment so that we could be shown the grace of God. And it was by his death that we're rescued from the judgment of God and that we're reconciled to God. You see, listen, we... I don't know, guys, if you notice this or not. I I, I assume you do because it seems obvious. We live in a hateful culture these days. People can't just disagree nicely anymore. It used to be a day back in the day, that people could disagree with one another, and then after they're done disagreeing with one another, they could, they could go sit on the porch and drink a glass of tea or, you know, whatever, drink a Coke or a beer or whatever they drank at the time. And they could do it together, and they could politely disagree with one another. Not anymore. We live in a culture that hates with a religious, don't misunderstand that, a religious hatred. Even if they consider themselves to be irreligious, they still have a religious hatred for anyone who disagrees with us. We villainize people and we marginalize them with hateful social media posts, for example. We're constantly outraged by everything. We need safe spaces and trigger warnings when we encounter people who actually might see things a little differently than we see them. But God has called us to something completely different. 
something unnatural. We are to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who instead of doing the natural thing, the thing that the rest of the world does, hating the people who we disagree with, disciples of Christ do the unnatural thing, the supernatural thing, loving their enemies and praying for those who persecute them. We do something miraculous, as miraculous as a big fish rescuing Jonah. We show our enemies grace. And as we do that, we become agents of reconciliation and healing in the world, just like our vision statement says, people that God can use, as opposed to people who are spewing more hateful poison into the world. That's what Jonah is supposed to teach us. Now, here's my question for you. I'm going to bring all of this to uh, this final uh, point. Who is there in your world who represents Nineveh? Who is there in your world that if you were honest with yourself, no matter how bad whatever it is that they do is, that if you were honest with yourself, you would have to acknowledge that you have a raging religious hatred in your heart for that person or those people. Maybe it is a boss. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it is liberals or conservatives, or maybe it's the LGBTQ uh, people, or I don't know, who else? And if you were honest, you would have to say, that in your heart there's a raging hatred because you believe self-righteously that they're the problem. And so whatever hatred that you feel is morally justifiable, it's the Republicans, it's the, cons- it's the, it's the liberals, it's the gays, it's the trans. Who is it? Who is it? Be honest with yourself. What God wants you to see today is that that hatred that you feel is as much a part of the problem, if not more, than the people that you blame, that you say are the problems in this world. God is calling you to be honest enough to acknowledge it to repent. Could you do that today? Folks, I'm telling you, I, I want you to hear this. The, we represent the hope of the world in the church. Do you realize that the thing about the church in this room, represented in this room today, are people that have all kinds of different opinions about things. Some are liberal, some are conservative. Um, all different kinds of people from every kind of background. Some are upper uh, management. Some are, you know, blue collar. And uh, some are people that are lawyers and some are people who have been in jail in this church. But the thing about the church is that we can unite around something far more important than all the silly things that we disagree on. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in the world. 
That's what the local church is. That's a miracle. The local church is a big fish. Folks, if we can't come to that place that we can acknowledge our own hatred and self-righteousness, there is no hope for America. The local church, not Google, not Facebook, not any other company or organization in the world, the local church is the hope of the world. That's you. That's me. But it begins with seeing what God wanted Jonah to see. And that was the raging hatred in his own heart for the people of Nineveh. Who's your Nineveh? Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when we come to a place that we, you know, see the depth of our own sin, it's very difficult, very difficult to see other people as the problem. Lord, would you bring us to a place today that we recognize that we are honest enough to admit to ourselves that our own hatred for other people that disagree with us and thinks this is much a part of the problem as theirs, maybe more, because we're members of the kingdom of God. Lord, would you bring us to the place that we want to do something supernatural, that we would pray for those who disagree with us, with us that, we would, that we would love them, that we would respond to them with grace. doesn't mean that we can't disagree, but that we would respond to them in gracious ways. It demonstrates the miraculous grace that we have been shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were thrown into the sea of God's wrath on our behalf and that because of your death we find life because of your because you took the punishment we find grace we pray these things now revering and honoring your holy name Lord Jesus Amen